If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Last Sunday, we finished looking at chapter 13, in which Jesus spoke of the coming destruction of the temple. Today, we begin looking at the last two days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And we find that there is a parallel between what Jesus said would happen to the temple and what would happen to him at the hand of the Romans. You may remember that in John chapter 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. In Mark 13, Jesus spoke of the destruction of the temple, which would mark the end of the Mosaic system. It would introduce a new, and that is that of the church. We've seen in our studies in the epistles that there are references to the last days, which many today in the modern age have taken to be literal, that is, the end of the world. In reality, they refer to the last age, which Jesus introduced. In Hebrews chapter 1, the book opens, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, he, that is Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So, it will be the end of that age, the Mosaic age, and then it will be the beginning of a new age, which will be the last age, that of the church. And speaking of the end of the temple, the age of the temple, Jesus used apocalyptic language, as we saw last week. Language that is used to describe terrible things in in the human world, but is discussed or described in terms of the cosmos, cosmic cataclysms. Uh, the sun will be darkened, the stars will fall from the sky, etc. As I said last week, we are not meant to take these words, such language, literally. The language is symbolic, as is what we read after the apocalyptic language. This is in chapter 13, verse 26. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. The image of the Son of Man coming in clouds is an image of judgment. It comes from the book of Daniel. It it spells the end of the oppressors and the liberation of God's chosen that Jesus would come in judgment and his people would be set free. Jesus is speaking of the kingdom or rule of God being transferred from the Jews with the destruction of the temple, their temple institution, to those who worship him in spirit and in truth, who have no need for a physical temple. You might ask, well, what does this have to do with the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, looking ahead here in chapter 14, If you look at verses 61 and 62, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Verse 62, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, 
In other words, you're going to see judgment. You're going to see judgment coming, and you will see it in the form of the destruction of the temple. So Jesus is saying that there's something that's going to happen that the high priest would witness. I don't know if he lived until 70 AD, but if he did, literally he would see the Son of Man coming and that the temple would be destroyed, or symbolically, when Jesus would be put to death at that point within a day. In looking at the last days of Jesus' life, a number of things come together, another parts come together in the passages we will look at today. First of all, the first two verses of chapter 14. That is, there is a plot to arrest Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Some things to think about. First of all, Passover is the most significant holiday in the Jewish calendar. The Israelites, as Zib read to us today, uh, Stephen was giving his defense before the Sanhedrin. They had been slaves for at least four centuries in Egypt. Moses had been sent down to bring them out and take them to the promised land. Pharaoh refused to let them go. And so you have a series of plagues that happened, nine, and then before the tenth and final plague, the Lord gave Moses and Aaron instructions that they were to share with the children of Israel. Okay? They were to take a lamb without blemish, set it apart until it was to be slaughtered at twilight. This is in Exodus 12. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over, pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you will celebrate it as a festival. So the Lord says, I'm going to pass through Egypt. But in Israel, they were in Goshen. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Thus the name. And it is celebrated to the present day. The Jewish people tell the story as they gather of slavery, of deliverance, and of the exodus. By the way, at the beginning of that chapter, chapter 12, uh, the Lord says, we're going to change the calendar. At the first month, this will mark, uh, see, the month is to be the first for you, uh, the first month, the first month of your year. So Passover is to happen at the beginning of the year. So it is a tremendous celebration but I think it has extra potency, if you wish, at this time, because the Jews are under the Romans, like they were under the Egyptians. They're not slaves, but in many ways, I think they felt that way. And so when they would celebrate the Passover, they couldn't help but wonder, the Lord delivered our people before, is he going to do it again for us soon? It is the setting that Jesus uh, set for the final showdown. Jesus could have come to Jerusalem at any time that he wanted, but he knows precisely what he's doing. He, in fact, will be the lamb without blemish. It is his blood 
that will allow God's wrath to pass over us rather than through us. Because it's only two days away, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are like, our hands are tied. We, we dare not grab this guy, arrest him, and kill him because the people were right. Because some of the people thought, this is the new Passover. This Jesus guy is the guy who is going to deliver us from the Romans, uh, just as Moses did the children of Israel. It's only been four days since the people shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, so they are looking for a sly way, not particularly crazy about the use of language, but craftily, they want to sneakily do something where they can arrest him and there not be a riot. Now a change of scene, verses 3 through 9 of Mark 14. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. If we take Mark's account chronologically, this is Wednesday night of Passion Week. But in fact, it's not, because in the Gospel of John, and uh, we are told, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So there is a time difference. It isn't Wednesday night. It's actually Saturday night. It's before Jesus entered into Jerusalem. So John gives us the when, when this happened. He tells us where it happens in the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. And he tells us who it is who did this. Uh, the woman in Mark's account is unnamed. She's anonymous. But here it is Mary, who is the sister of Martha, also the sister of Lazarus. We've seen before in our study that the Gospel of Mark isn't chronological until we get to the Passion Week. And yet at this point, Mark inserts this story. It sets, if you wish, the stage for the betrayal uh, by Judas. So the meal takes place at the house of Simon the leper. I've always found this a bit strange. I assume Simon has been healed. I assume he's been healed by Jesus. And that's why he's having this meal to, as sort of a thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for him. But it seems that he's condemned to always be known as Simon the leper. He no longer has leprosy, but that's how people know him. The woman, who is Mary, came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Alabaster jar is finely grained, uh, fine-grained gypsum, a uh, form of a stone, and she breaks it and 
pours the perfume. In Mark's account, it's on his head. In John's account, it's on his feet. And yet Jesus, as we'll see in a few minutes, will say, she poured it on my body. Okay. Pure nard. Um, it comes from the dry root leaves of a particular Himalayan plant. Okay, if you know anything about geography, the Himalayas are quite a far, quite a distance away from Palestine. So no doubt that's part of the reason it was expensive. It cost more than a year's worth of wages, but she freely gives it as an act of worship. She breaks it and pours it on Jesus. An unusual act of worship, to say the least. As one writer put it, it always happens when people decide to worship Jesus without inhibition, to pour out their valuables, their stories, their dancing, their music before him, just as they feel like doing, the others looking on find the spectacle embarrassing and distasteful. Um, you may remember the story when they brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and David was dancing wildly and his wife Michael's like, yeah, that, that wasn't good. Uh, you, you embarrassed yourself. Uh, I must confess, I'm very traditional. Uh, conservative and so sometimes I'm a little put off when people worship God in a way that it's not the way I would do it um, I think I might be more with the disciples at this part of the story than I would be with Mary and I would be wrong they are distressed over what she has done because it's wasteful you know if you want to worship God sell this and give the money to the temple or give it to the poor do something ethical with it, do something spiritual or religious with it. Um, and they rebuked her harshly for doing this. Jesus corrects them. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Why are you bothering her? And then he goes to say, the poor you have with you always, you can help them anytime you want. Uh, this is actually, Jesus is paraphrasing something we find in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, in the law. Uh, if there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he, whatever he needs. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Verse 11. This is from Deuteronomy 15. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in the land. You see, the fact that there will always be poor people means we will always have opportunity to share what God has given to us. I think on some level, we imagine the perfect society, a utopia, there's no more poor people. Yeah, and you know what? If that's the case, there are no more generous people. It is because of poverty that we are able by God's grace, to be generous, open-handed, not 
tight-fisted and to give to those in need. At the same time, uh, read the book of Psalms. It's quite amazing. Being poor can cause you to cry out to God, to look to him, because the poor are oppressed, and you can say, Lord, you are my refuge. You'll always have the poor with me, Jesus says, but I'm not always going to be here. I'm not always going to be here. What does that mean? The disciples might be thinking, well, Jesus knows that he is about to be put to death. Within the week, he will be in the tomb. But he also knows that he will be resurrected and ascend to heaven. He will no longer be physically present with them. Therefore, they should help those who are always with them, those who are in need. He says she did what she could. And it points ahead to his death and burial. You'll notice, as I said, that Jesus says that she poured the perfume on his body. So John says foot, Mark says head, I would say head to toe. She pours this perfume on him. And then he says wherever the gospel is preached, her story will be told. Her story will be told, and it should be, absolutely should be. Now verses 10 and 11, the betrayal by Judas. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This happened somewhere between Saturday night and Thursday night that Judas approaches the enemies of Jesus and offers to betray him. Why did he do Was it the act of Mary? Did that push him over the edge? It's like, well, I'm, I'm out of here. This, a program where a woman can waste all this perfume on Jesus instead of giving it to the poor? Was it the fact that Jesus said, there will always be poor with you? Well, wait a minute. You, you keep saying the kingdom of heaven is near. Will there be poor people in the kingdom of heaven? That, that's certainly not the kingdom of God that I want to be a part of. Or was it simply greed? You'll notice that he doesn't, at least in Mark's account, he doesn't ask for a specific amount of money. They offer to give him money. They promise to give him money. And so Judas waits. He bides his time to see when he has an opportunity. Now verses 12 through 16, the preparation for the Passover meal. Verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. It's the day before Passover, but it's the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the day on which at twilight you are to sacrifice a lamb that will be eaten at the Passover meal. Uh, Jesus is their teacher. He would be the host of the meal. 
he is giving them instructions as to where they should go and have this meal. He tells them to enter Jerusalem, and there they'll find a man carrying a jar of water. Well, for us, this may seem like, well, there are probably a lot of men carrying jars of water. No, actually, no. This is something women did. So if you see a man carrying a jar of water, that's unusual. So follow him to the place where he goes, and then talk to the owner of that house and says, the master uh, wants to know, the teacher wants to know where he can celebrate the Passover. He'll show you a large upper room, make the preparations, and in fact, they would do so. Side note, it was a rule in Israel that anyone who had space available had to be given that, give that space away free of charge during the time of Passover. To whatever family or group wanted it, they could use it for the Passover. So what Jesus does here is, in fact, within the custom of that time, and the man, I, w- I would assume he was also a follower of Jesus, but if not, he's still following the custom. You can use the upper room for free. Now Jesus tells his disciples the bad news. Verses 17 to 21. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if, it had not, if he had not been born. So they're eating a meal. And as was the custom, they didn't sit at a table as we do, but reclined. Uh, the food is in the center. And the, you have these couches all pointing in. And they are reclining and reaching over and dipping, because it's the Passover meal, dipping it into a broth. And while they're doing that, suddenly Jesus makes us announce, one of you guys is going to betray me. And it's interesting, he also says, it is one of the twelve. You know, lest, lest it wasn't clear enough, it's one of the twelve disciples who will betray him. And their reaction, well, you can just imagine. Passover meal is a time of joy. You remember the deliverance out of Egypt, and you're with the teacher, the rabbi, and then suddenly says, okay, one of you guys is going to betray me. Their first reaction is sadness. But the second reaction is, is it me? It's not me, is it? Uh, which I've always found a bit strange. I think my first reaction would be, well, it's absolutely not me. But they don't seem to have any confidence that it could not be them. Jesus says it's one of the twelve, one who will dip his bread into the bowl with me. And this recalls something from Psalm 41. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. The depth of the betrayal is seen in the fact that he is a friend of Jesus, he's a disciple of Jesus, he shares his food, his bread. By the way, it also means that Jesus knows who it is that's going to do it. Giving Judas the opportunity to back out. 
to say, I'm not going to betray you. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to tell the chief priests and the, the teachers of the law how they may arrest you. But as we find in John's account, Judas leaves. He goes out. Jesus says, what you're going to do? Yeah, do it quickly. He refused the opportunity to repent. And how tragic is that? Then in verses 22 to 26, we have, in the midst of the Last Supper, the institution of what we call the Lord's Supper. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he told them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We have just celebrated the Lord's Supper. This is the night in which it was instituted. But there are some problems. When Jesus says, take it, this is my body, uh, does somehow the bread be- he is physically there bodily there it's Jesus talking holding the bread giving thanks breaking it and then giving it to them so I would say that what he is saying of the bread is that it is symbolic it symbolizes what he is going to do for them his body is going to be broken for them okay? throughout his ministry as we've seen in the gospel of Mark he used symbolic language but particularly with regard to bread. In John chapter 6, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. That's in John 6.35. 13 verses later, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Okay? This is symbolic. It is not literal. The purpose of this symbolic meal, the bread and the cup, is that his people, the church, his disciples, should remember his sacrifice, that they should love him for his sacrifice, reflect on that sacrifice, embrace him by faith, and look to him in living hope. But let's not forget, we know what's going to happen next. We know what happens afterwards. We're after the story. The disciples don't. And as wonderful as these words are to us, Um, we hear them every Sunday, they must have been frightening, stunning, and really confusing to the disciples. What What do you mean this is your body? What do you mean this is your blood of the new covenant? But there's more to come. I tell the the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. What does this mean? They must have asked. You're not going to drink anymore until the kingdom comes? I think they were really confused. But as is the custom, they sang a hymn, which is either part or all of Psalms 115 to 118. These are the psalms that will be sung after the Passover meal. They went out to the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the temple and Jerusalem. Final section today, verses 27 to 31. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, 
I will strike the shepherd and the shepherd will be uh, the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Jesus tells them, you all are going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. And he quotes from Zechariah 13, that the shepherd will be stricken and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus will be put, he will be arrested, they will scatter. He will be put to death and they will scatter. But he says, listen, after you all abandon me, Go up to Galilee, and I'll meet you up there. I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter and the disciples are like, no way. We're not going to abandon you. We're going to stick with you. I find it, I don't know if arrogant is the right word, but if Jesus tells you that something's going to happen, how dare you say, that's never going to happen. He tells Peter, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times, somewhere between midnight and three in the morning. Uh, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Absolutely not. It will never happen. Never take place. Well, we know how the story goes. In fact, he did. But I would also point out that all the others said the same. We like to pick on Peter, but that's because of Peter's denial the three times. But they all said, we will not abandon you. But in fact, they did. In our study of the Gospel of Mark, I have been really hard on the disciples. Their failure to understand who Jesus was, what he was saying, what he was doing, what the kingdom of God was about, they just didn't seem to get it. But in our passages today, I find myself being a lot more sympathetic. The things are happening, and Jesus is saying things, and it just doesn't make sense. It starts with Mary's anointing with expensive perfume. What is she doing? What is this? I mean, I don't know that we have anything that is equivalent to this. I mean, you go to a man and you pour perfume all over his body, expensive perfume. Is this worship? What a waste. And then Jesus says, oh, Don't worry, she's preparing my body beforehand for burial. What does that mean? I mean, if you're going to die in 20 or 30 or 40 years, the perfume's going to wear off by then. Uh, We know what it means because we know what happened. They don't know what's going to happen. And so it, it is really confusing to them. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. It doesn't seem possible. Then, and the meal, he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he goes, guys, this is my body. What does that mean? What does that even mean? And then he shares a cup with them. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant. That language is very reminiscent of what we hear in Exodus 24. 
uh, Moses has come down from Mount Sinai with the law and we read they burnt they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people they responded we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey Moses then took the blood that is in the bowls sprinkled it on the people and said this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And now Jesus is saying, this is my blood of the new covenant? I mean, if they haven't understood what Jesus has been saying up to this point, then they're certainly not going to get this. I think they'd be really confused. And then to top it off, if it can't get any worse, Jesus says, oh, by the way, you all are going to abandon me. Uh, This was a hard night for the disciples. And I find that I should be a bit more sympathetic and recognize that as human beings we are frail and whatever measure of faith we have is a gift from God. Whatever understanding we have is a gift from God. By the way, did Mary know that Jesus was going to be put to death? No. She did something out of an act of love, of worship, not knowing that in fact it was symbolic of something. He is going to be put to death. The Jews don't embalm, they put perfume on the dead body and wrap it in cloths. She is doing something, but she's doing it out of love. As I said, I, I think I'm with the disciples. Or I, if I was there that night, I was like, Mary, what are you doing? This, this is not appropriate. But she does it out of love. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done this beautiful thing. So the disciples don't get it. I wonder at times if the same could be said of us. That we think we have complete understanding, or at least good understanding. We're always, always to rely on the grace of God. And whatever measure of understanding we have, it comes from him. Shortly, the disciples will understand. But not at this point. Not at this point. There are many things that God does in our lives that we don't understand. And maybe we never will till we get to heaven. And then we won't really care because we'll be in the presence of God. But whatever understanding you and I have, it is because of the grace of God. And now, after the fact, we can read Mark 14 and go, oh yeah, we know what that means. Because of the grace of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we are grateful that you've given us mind to think, minds to think hearts to receive your truth. We pray that you would give us humility to recognize that whatever understanding we have is because of your grace, because of your work in our lives. And may we also realize that there are some things that we will never understand, but that's okay. May we be like Mary, 
who didn't actually know that she was acting out the, the preparation of Jesus' body for burial. But she did something out of love. She did something that was expensive. She did something that most would say was inappropriate. But she did it to show her love and affection for the Lord Jesus. I confess that sometimes I wonder about what people do. My responsibility is to love the Lord Jesus and to worship him and adore him. To know that others may do it in a very different way. I'm grateful for the example of the disciples on this night that must have been so confusing for them, so upsetting to be told that one of them would betray Jesus and then to be told that they would all abandon him. For Jesus to say, this is my blood of the new covenant. You did in fact strike the shepherd and the sheep would scatter. But in your grace, you would restore them. Forgive us when we fail in our worship. Forgive us when we judge others. Forgive us for our lack of understanding or relying on our own understanding and being quite wrong. And thank you for your grace. We're grateful for Oscar's birthday last Friday, for Lonnie's tomorrow, for the years you've given to them. Every day is a gift from you. May we be grateful. And now, as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.